So, hello everybody. Uh, my name is Richard Mulholland. Uh, can you hear me okay in the back there? If you do want me to, I'll hold a microphone, but I tend to speak with my hands and then I'll forget and then you won't hear anyway. You are also welcome to come uh, a bit to the front and chat and, and uh, sit here. You guys okay over there? I may occasionally forget you because you got like business class seats. You're nice in the, in the shade there. Everything's okay. Uh, so I want to talk to you about how to suck less in public. Uh, this is uh, something that I do. A bit of background. So I started, so I'm 44 years old now. So like proper dad age. Uh, although I still don't feel it. I, I still keep thinking like I'm, I'm, I'm not. Uh, I started my first company when I was 22 years old. Uh, the missing link, we've now been going 22 years and it's a presentation company. And the reason I started it is I used to be a rock and roll roadie. So I did lighting for rock bands, uh, bands you won't know, but bands like Iron Maiden and Def Leppard and things like this. So I was on tour with bands like that. In winter, nobody hired us. And the reason was South Africans, they don't like going to concerts when it's cold. Now I'm from Scotland. This is crazy for me because if we didn't go to concerts when it's cold, there would never be concerts. So um, I went to my boss, I said, dude, we could start a corporate division because people did conferences all year round. And I would go and I would say to them, I'm gonna turn you out. So I was lucky enough, I designed the moving lights for an Iron Maiden world tour when I was 21. And uh, I went to these guys, these big corporates, and I'd say to them, I'm gonna make your conference, they're all boring and dull, and I'm gonna turn them into like rock shows. And they were like, yes. And they were so excited about this, they thought this was really cool. So I would get these lights and sound and AV and staging, and these CEOs would go into these big conference centers and the lights would start going and everything would be amazing and they'd be all excited and their staff would be excited. And then they'd finish up after the music and they'd get onto the stage and they'd be crap. And they'd be like, hi everybody, thanks so much for being here. And they would do death by PowerPoint for the next eight hours and people would sit there and their eyes would bleed. <laughs> And I would sit at the back of the room and I had to be there every day. Like uh, your parents have to go to conferences like once or twice a year. I had to do this every day of my miserable life. Now, you guys have probably heard this quote by Confucius. It's a life quote. It says, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Have you heard that? It's rubbish. Forget it now. Okay, you've been lied to. If I did what I loved, I'd be a pizza delivery guy. I have a whole bunch of motorcycles. I love riding my motorbikes. And my other hobby is playing strategy board games. So if I did what I loved, I would either be a strategy board gamer, owning a game cafe, or I'd be a, a, a pizza delivery guy. Both of those sound fun, but I have other, other goals and aspirations I want to achieve. If you can find what irritates you most in the world, there's a market there. Right? Don't do what you love, find what you hate and fix it. Right? When you love something, it, you love it because it works. If it works already, where's the market? If you find something that frustrates you, it frustrates other people. And if it frustrates other people, that's something worth fixing. So I used to sit in the back and think, well, I'm a cure for no disease because I'm doing the lighting and sound and AV and staging, but it wasn't solving the real problem. The real problem was that people are really bad at presenting, at public speaking. What if I could fix that? And just occasionally I would see some people who'd be quite good and I'd be like, oh, this guy does this, this guy does that. So I used to go to companies and while I was setting them the staging, I'd met this other guy who did design, of th design and stuff and I would say to him, hey, what about we help you with the presentation as well? And for six months I had a full-time job but also started a company. After six months we had five employees. I figured, okay, there must be a market here for something. Maybe we're on to solving a real problem. 
and it is a real problem. And I'll tell you why. Because public speaking matters. My son, when he was young, uh, when he was about 11 or 12, he was really big into public speaking, enjoyed it at school, loved it, thought it was great. Then as he got a bit older, he realized he had a massive affinity for mathematics and for uh, physics. He's 16 years old now. He loves maths and physics. He, this is his thing. And he wants to be an astrophysicist. And I said, kid, are you still pushing your public speaking? He said, dad, I don't want to be a public speaker. I want to be an astrophysicist. And what I told him, and I'm telling you now, is this. An astrophysicist that can communicate will beat out an astrophysicist that can't, right? It doesn't matter. You look at any sphere, any influence, any area, anybody you guys go look at at YouTube, anybody you watch, the world is run by the communicators, right? The communicator, the, those who can communicate, your ability to communicate is the multiplier of the talent you have. And if you have talent at five, but can communicate at 10, that's 50. But if you have talent at 10 out of 10, but can communicate at one, well, you're still stuck with 10. We've seen it our entire career. You'll have the person who's the best actuarial scientist in a business, and they stand up on a stage and they're really, really struggling to get their points across. But then you have the number three person in the business, and they stand up on a stage and they hold an audience captured for ages. They're the ones who get the good jobs. They're the ones who win. And what I want to create in you is an itch that you need to scratch around public speaking. It's an unfair advantage and it will completely change the game for you. No matter what you want to do in life, if you're the person who can communicate it, and I may be on a stage like this, or it might be uh, on a YouTube channel or on a podcast or in whichever way you want to do it. Are you guys comfortable there? Are you sure you're not getting, are you okay? I mean, you look like badass and hardcore. You're standing there, you got your arms folded. It's like, if, if I say it wrong, you'll kick me out. I get it, but, um, Hey, detention, no, I'm joking. <laughs> I've always wanted to say that. How's this? Red, red, thanks. Hey, hey, what's up? So, so that's the thing. So this year, I've, I've now what happened, I have, I guess, the last bit of background. So our company's motto is to save the world one board audience at a time. We want to impact the way that people speak all over the world. We've got five companies now. I have five businesses in a, a number of different areas. So Missing Link does presentation design strategy and training and conference design. I have Talk Drawer, which is like a Netflix for pre-created talks. I want to challenge some of you to deliver some of these data and I'll tell you how. I'll send codes to the schools. You can do it for free. I've written talks and my team, short little five, 10 minute talks on subjects. They're mostly business related, but we can fix that as well. And then we have coaching videos teaching you how to present them. I do believe we sometimes need to separate the art of writing a good presentation from the art of delivering a good presentation. And one of the things I'm going to talk to you today is about how to write one, the formula, how you can hack a good message. Because what I have seen is a mediocre speaker with a well-structured story always beats a great speaker with a terrible story. Right? It's, it's the way that you structured your message that wins because you're buying your audience's attention early. So then the other businesses we have, we have a sales company called the sales department. I have a team building and uh, uh, strategy business called 21 Tanks. And then I have a social entrepreneurship project called Human Rights. Uh, we sell little notebooks like Moleskine notebooks. For every book we sell, we give away 10 uh, books to kids to educare facilities down in, in Western Cape. Uh, we so far given over uh, well over 100,000 books away. And so I'm quite excited about that.
I spent most of my time speaking this year so far. I don't know where we're in, but by uh, midway through April, I'd spoken in 21 countries on six continents. And it's a cool way to see the world. It's great. And look at me, I'm a tattooed idiot. Like who would hire this guy to speak? It shouldn't work. But being able to stand up and communicate is an unfair advantage. The other thing I want to say, and if I was speaking to maybe your parents or people who are working, I would use the term about leadership. So I don't believe presentation is about presentation. That's the product, that's the thing. It's actually about leadership. And when you have a look at the world, right, if you go and search for managers, you find all these dull pictures of people who work in corporate jobs that you will hate. Yeah, you'll sit there, you'll come back to me, you'll be in your 40s, you'll be like, oh, this seemed like such a good idea at the time, but you wanna do something different. Versus the leaders of the world. And if you look at the greatest leaders in the world and you see the one thing that they all have in common, all the greatest leaders of the world can communicate. They can all stand up, even the bad ones, even the evil ones. What they have in common is they can stand up and get people to follow them. It is the unfair advantage uh, that you will have over anybody else in the workplace because I've yet to see a university course that prioritizes public speaking. They teach you how to figure out how to do your job, but they don't teach you how to tell other people how to make that happen. And what I love about this school and why I agreed to come here is because you guys are prioritizing this. I believe you speak on Friday sometimes and you have the TED room, which I just saw. So I was the first South African to speak on the main stage of TED. I've done a number of uh, TEDx talks uh, myself, I think three at the moment. Uh, we train TED speakers all over the world at the moment. And it really, really is a way of elevating yourself to another level. Are there any questions we have so far on this? So who here does do talks? Why? Why don't you speak more? Do you deliver talks at school? Do you deliver presentations? Orals? Yes? One, my man, keep having your sandwich. You're winning, you're cool. Yep, sometimes. What kind of topics? Okay. It's just the, not verbally as much as the reports. Okay, so you do a report on something. So if you're doing a report on what, like a book, what, what is your purpose? Getting the main idea of the book, I suppose. Okay, so to me, anytime you're speaking, because the one thing is, the problem is, is it often is just about recounting a story and getting a message across. For me, the reality is the presentation is very, very simple. You have two jobs. You have to deliver a message to achieve a result. Okay, that's it. There's always a result. If you finish the presentation, everyone's just like, cool, nothing happens. It's just information. You know what the world does not lack? Nobody here does not have enough information. Right? Nobody has an information problem. What we have is an action problem, is that we hear things and we don't turn them into action. So your job in any presentation is to deliver a message to achieve a result. The result I hope to have today with you guys is to provoke, heck, I don't mind if I can get like two or three of you to turn around and say, I'd like to deliver a talk, I'd like to stand up and speak, I wanna give this a bash, then I've won, right? But my, my only victory condition in today is to make you care and realize that your ability to communicate to groups of people will be what ramps up your career and changes your trajectory in your life. It's absolutely, absolutely what I believe to be true, no matter which field you're in. Because again, the astrophysicist that can communicate, I asked my son, who's your hero? He said, it's Neil deGrasse Tyson. 
It's this astrophysicist he sees online. I said, well, how do you know about him? He says, well, he gives these amazing lectures. Good, shut up, speak. Right, that's, that's it, that's the difference. And, and you need to understand that if you just stand up and the reason people are generally bored, it's because they don't understand why they should care. And I'm gonna take you through a four-step process for delivering a presentation today. And I've got some slides on it, and I may or may not get there, maybe we'll do some q and I'll take you through them. But I wanna take you through a four-step process. And what I'll do is afterwards, I'll share this with you and share it with your teachers so you're able to work on it maybe for the next oral you do or the presentation you do. But it's very, very simple. So, I believe that any presentation, when you understand you're trying to deliver a message to achieve a result, it's something you can codify for victory. You can just write it in such a way that it'll work. And I'm gonna give you four, these four steps right now to take you through that. Step number one, and something that we always forget, is you've gotta give your audience a reason to care. Before you sell any ideas to anybody, you have to buy their attention. You guys all sat down here today and none of you could possibly have cared really about listening to some strange tattoo dude talk to you about public speaking. What I try to do in the first few minutes is to provoke you into thinking that, hey, maybe there's something to this. Maybe I should care about the opportunity of standing up and delivering a message. You have to buy your audience's attention. I remember one example. So we were training the TED Fellow speakers at TED in Edinburgh in, I think, 2011. And one of the speakers was this guy called Garrick Israelian. And you can watch his talk online. He was a spectographer. So he talks about gas in space. Now, I don't care how nerdy you are, a talk on gas on space to average human beings, it's gonna be boring, right? Even to other scientists. So this guy gets onto a stage and he's got this weird, crazy accent and he starts speaking about, yeah, so then we have the Hüttenflügen and it mixes with the Gaskin-Satzen and then this, this happens and he gets all excited. He's like, oh, the Hüttenflügen mixes with the and, oh, and everyone's like, and I'm sitting there, I'm in this audience and two seats over from me is Jeff Bezos. Does anybody know who Jeff Bezos is? No. Who? Yes, the founder of Amazon slash super rich, right? If not the rich, I definitely was at some stage the richest person in the world and the largest business in the world. So I'm sitting three seats over from Jeff Bezos and I can see him struggling. The founder of Amazon doesn't understand what's going on here, why he should listen to you. And I could see at one point he reaches to the back and takes out his phone. I thought, if he can send a tweet, so can I. And by, you know, three quarters of the way through this guy's talk, he'd lost everybody. Everybody tapped out because nobody could understand why they were supposed to listen to a talk about mixing gases in space. Eventually, the guy comes to the end of his talk and he's wrapping up and he says, good, so there you go now, you understand why this is all happening and blah, blah, blah. And he says, and that is how within 10 years, I'll be able to prove to you if there is life on another planet, thank you. And he walks away and everyone's like, what? What? Lead with that. Start with that message, right? If I was that guy, if I was coaching that guy to deliver a talk, he would have walked on the stage that day, would have said, ladies and gentlemen, good day and welcome. My name is Gary Israelian, and I'm very, very proud to be standing on this stage here today at TED 2021. Because today I'm going to answer a question for you with profound proof, a question that humankind has asked since the first time we gazed up at the stars. Today, I am going to answer the question, are we 
alone. And now you're like, dude, bring it. <laughs> and then you turn and say, and the answer to that question, ladies and gentlemen, is a resounding, but wait, I'm getting ahead of myself. You see, this journey actually started in a stage just like this 10 years ago, when I stood to a TED audience just like you and told them about a new telescope that I had built that can scan the universe for gases. Now, now he's bought my attention because now he's going to explain to me how he's going to answer the question, are we uh, alone? I care about that. But if he didn't start with that, he hasn't bought my attention, so I've not engaged my brain enough to listen. The, the truth, by the way, of how he's done it is he's built this telescope that uh, he's identified there are these three gases, and when this gas mixes with this gas and human life or life, any form of life, uh, a third gas will, will come out. And, he's re and this will always be the case. If there is life, this gas will exist. If there isn't life, the gas will not exist. So he's built a telescope that can see that gas, and it will take him 10 years to scan the universe. That's the, that's the TED Talk. But he didn't start with that. And he went all scientific and too much data, and he lost his audience from five minutes in. And if you're giving a book report, if you're giving a report on something, the first job you've got to figure out is, hmm, what do I want them to do differently when I leave? Once you've figured that out, say, oh, it might be I want them to read this book. Or it might be I never want anybody to read this book ever again. Or it could be I want them to try and take away this one thing. And then you've got to ask yourself, why should they care? What problem does this solve? When you can find out a problem that your thing has with your audience, then you start from there. So job number one in any presentation you ever give from this point on is very, very simple. Give them a reason to care. Make sure they care. Step number two, you've got to give your audience a reason to believe. Why should they believe you? Well, I, I, I might care, I might think, okay, I do care about the fact that you're going to tell me that aliens exist, but, you know, who are you? Ah, I'm a spectrographer, I've built all of these things, I've you know, worked for this company. In my case, I'm talking to you about presentation theory. Why should you believe me? Well, I coach TED speakers, young, first South African to speak on the main stage of TED. I spoke in this year in 23 countries and six continents. Small little things that I gave you to try and give you some degree of confidence that in the sphere of public speaking, uh, I could be somebody you could listen to. And then, and only then, and by the way, nobody cares about you. They only care about you insofar as you can help them. So don't ever give more information at this stage than is required for you giving your message hope. Then we're going to get to the next stage. And the next stage is tell them what they need to know. Now you give the information. This is unfortunately where most of you start. Hi, I want to tell you about whales. Whales are mammals. Blah, blah, blah. Big. They spout water. Nobody cares, so we've, we've skipped through that. Now you can get into information. You've bought my attention. I understand you're credible. Now give me some sense of a message. Now explain to me, uh, give me the information that I need. And the only information that you're giving me there is information that will help me get to the final step of a presentation, and that is this. Tell them what they need to do. Information without a call to action. There's a line I always say that says, if action followed knowledge, we'd all have six-packs. Right? Every single person theoretically knows what it takes to get a six-pack. Every one of us. Right? There's a certain, you can, if you don't, you can figure that out very easily. Unfortunately, it requires action. And most people, when you watch something, because public speaking people will tell you all the time, oh, tell a story. 
but it's not enough. If you read a story, you don't go and change because you heard it. If you watch a good movie, right, you don't watch a good film and then do something differently. It's got to be, uh, we've got to be explicit about these things. We've got to say to you, right, so what do I want you to do because of this? And those are the four steps of a presentation. It's super easy. Give them a reason to care, buy their attention. Give them a reason to believe, get across your credibility. Tell them what they need to know, deliver information and share information, and tell them what they need to do, a call to action. That's a basic building block for any presentation. Now, I'm going to detail on any of these, but I've been doing too much of the talking, and I feel that I'm letting you guys off stock free, and you know, it's very, very rare that I get to get some degree of teacher's revenge for how I felt when I was a student, and this is my one chance to make you guys do some work. So I'm not putting this over to you, and I'd like to open up and see if we can have some questions around this, and it's gonna be really awkward, because I'm just gonna stare at you until you start, but don't worry, we'll get in there eventually, we'll start with some questions, then we'll get there, and there's no holds barred, this is an AMA, and ask me anything, you can ask me about public speaking, you can ask me about how I started my companies, you can ask me about, apparently the first question I was asked today is, where did I get my tattoos? You can ask me anything, so, so let's go, good job. Let's go, let's go with that. Ask me anything, go. Where were you born? I was born in Glasgow in Scotland. But thank you, good job. Uh, and I moved here when I was nine years old because my father got a job in South Africa. And I don't want to leave because everywhere else is crappy compared to here. I promise you, all the time you will keep on hearing about people who leave and they're leaving South Africa and they go to other countries. Again, I've been to lots of those countries. Every single time I come back, I'm like, we're winning at life. Every place in the world has problems. Uh, the nice thing about South Africa's problems is they seem to be relatively solvable. And when we do solve them, when we do solve them, uh, we're stuck here. By the way, this is winter right? This is winter. This is other people's summers are worse than this. So are we winning? Yeah. Yes. Yes, sir. Um, so you did a TED talk, right? Yeah. What was it about? First impressions lie. It was the idea that we get taught the whole, our whole life that you can, um, uh, you, uh, you've probably heard this line to some degree, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. If I, that was me, if that was the case, I would be a beggar in the side of the road. I don't believe that we do actually make rapid cognition decisions in the first instance. I think we have to make a great lasting impression. So I walk into meetings with people and they look at me in these big corporates. So I, again, I was 22 year old punk rocker when I started my company. Our clients are all big banks. Uh, when I was 22, I was working with the CEO of Standard Bank on his conference all the way from 20 to 30 because I also owned a punk rock record label. I refused to wear long pants. So I was a guy in shorts, 22 years old with tattoos, walking into a meeting. And by all, by all measures, nobody should have taken it seriously. I think it worked for two different reasons. Reason number one was because when I wore a suit and tie and looked like I was a 22 year old, they knew exactly where to place me. I looked like one of them, but younger. So they treated me like a subordinate. But when you're 22 years old, you have this amazing thing right? And you've all, you've all got it to some degree now. It gets better and then you lose it. You have this thing called delusional self-belief, right? Where you just believe, I can do anything. Milk as much, milk as much of the universe as you can while you still have it. 
Because then one day you wake up and you're like 40, you're like, oh, goodness gracious me, I don't know what I'm talking about. And then you start doubting everything. But uh, so I walked in there, I was in my shorts and my t-shirt. And what I realized is by the time, if they saw me when I walked in the door, it's a two out of 10. Like, what is this guy doing walking into a meeting like this? This is ridiculous, so disrespectful. I was like, hey man. And then they started telling me about their presentation problems. And then I spoke and I said, but guys, what we can do is we can take your message. We can do it like this. And they were like, oh, it's not a two, it's a three, it's a four, it's a five, it's a six. So even if I left at a seven out of 10, I'd please them by five. Does that make sense? If not, go back to maths, right? If they saw me as a two out of 10 and I left as a seven out of 10, they were like, whoa, this guy took me on a big journey. I was expecting this, but I got this. That's like going to a movie. I'll tell you now. My competitors walked in a suit and a tie and a nice briefcase and they walked in like, hello. Hi there, good day to you. Hi, nice to meet you. <laughs> you know, and they're all nerdy and stuff. And then they finished me and they walked in, they're like, mm, this guy looks like fits. Six out of 10. When they leave, really good. They leave at an eight out of 10. And then, you know, in their mind, they started better and they ended better. They must be looking like, ha bitch, please. <laughs> when but we always win. And the reason we always won is because we had a, a bigger, we made a bigger lasting impression. Now, not everyone is going to be able to pull this off, but you do want to, you know, one of the things my son mentioned a few times, uh, he like really struggled when he was about 13. He, he couldn't quite fit in and he was really struggling to fit in. He didn't quite understand his friends. He liked different things to other people and it didn't, it didn't make sense to him. And he came to me, he said like that, I don't understand, like, because him and I can chat all the time and it's perfect and we get on really, really well. And he said, I struggle, but I, I can't find people like me. And I said to him, kid, you know what? You're going to spend the first 18 of your years of your life trying to fit in. And then you're going to spend the next 50 years of your life trying to stand out. Right? It's kind of, it's okay. And the, sometimes the later you find your thing, the better it lasts you. And I never fitted in at school. Right? But luckily, I leave school and I still didn't fit in and I walked into a world and I stood out in a time when standing out mattered. So I didn't try to ever be somebody that I couldn't be. You know what I can't pull off? I can't pull off being a guy in a corporate suit and tie. You know, hello there ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for having me. Wonderful to be here. <laughs> like nobody buys it. And let me tell you this as well. Every single audience in the world, people will always tell you things like know your audience. You gotta know your audience. You can't, it's a lie. You cannot know your audience. Are all of you the same? No. Oh, but you must be. You're all just, you know, teenage children. Obviously, I must just know what teenage children are like and speak to you like that. It sounds so absurd. And yet people will tell you that all the time. But I'll tell you one thing. <coughs> oh. oh, I wanna swear, I'm not going to. Okay, again. <laughs> But every single, the one thing that you can know about audiences is every single audience in the world has a perfectly tuned bull hair detector, <laughs> okay? And they can see it. They have an authenticity detector second to none. And every single audience in the world knows if you're being true to yourself within minutes. And whether I realized years ago that some audiences are gonna like me and some are gonna hate me and I don't care. Right? You know what I don't want to be? Average. I never want to be anyone's like, nah, whatever. Right? I want to be, and I talk to people about being the best or the favorite. And you think about it. If I asked you, what is the best music album of all time? And we get any best music artist of all time? 
Huh? Bye. Best of all time. Now, now we could argue with this, right? Because, no, no, and I'll tell you why, because we could debate it. Based on sales? Ah, okay. So I can't argue with your personal opinion, but we can argue on best because we could say, well, like, but wait a minute, on critical review, on how many awards it won, on where it reached on the billboard charts, we can debate this. But it's unmeaningful, right? And people will always say to me, oh, it might be the Beatles, or it might be the Rolling Stones, or it might be Dire Straits, or it might be Michael Jackson. And then I say to them, but how often do you listen to those bands? And they're like, well, not so much. You know, at a wedding and things. I said, cool. It's like if I asked you what is the best restaurant in Johannesburg or in South Africa, they might say, oh, it's a test kitchen in Cape Town. What is it? The Baron. The Baron. Right. And I'll come to where the Baron becomes true in a second. The best, again, we can argue how many Michelin stars did that restaurant win? You know, how long is the queue? That test kitchen in Cape Town, you have to like book two years in advance. Uh, my sister went there with my brother-in-law and two of their friends. Their dinner was 10,000 Rand. She said it was a once-in-a-lifetime experience. She didn't mind, except on the way home, they were hungry and had to get McDonald's. That is a problem. But now, if I say to you about favorites, if I said to you, what's your favorite, uh, who's your favorite music artist? Dre. Right, my favorite music artist is a punk rock band called Rise Against. We can't argue. There's no argument to be had. Uh, no, he's not. Uh, yes, he is. Like, how do you argue with somebody on their favorite something? It's meaningless. We can argue about best, because that's, you know, show me the data. If I said to you, what is, my, what is your favorite restaurant? The Baron. Can't argue, I might not like the Baron. My favorite restaurant I'm actually going tonight is a, a curry house in four ways called Gazal. Have any of you ever been there? It's the business, okay? All of you are wrong and I am right, okay? <laughs> yes. And it's, uh, but, in, and I realized for me as a public speaker, is I don't want to be the best speaker, but I want to be somebody's favorite speaker. I don't want to be somebody's favorite presentation they ever attended. And I realized in order to be somebody's favorite something, I need to be willing to be somebody's best something else. And, and that's where I went with. And my entire talk was about that. It was about uh, making, it's okay to not make a perfect first impression. Because sometimes when we do that, we try and guess what we think they want to see. And then, they, then we show up as somebody who isn't us. And you're all pretty crappy at being not you. But you're all, I do know one thing categorically true, the one thing that I will challenge you to the death, we can have a death match right here, yes, is that I am absolutely 100% the best version of me on the planet. Right, there's no more arguments, there's no argument there. Nobody is better at being me than me. And, and that is the same for every single one of you. The moment you can become comfortable with that fact, and be willing to be unable to stand up in front of a group of people and not try to be anybody else, but just be you, loud, you win. That's all I am, I am me at volume. And the reason you know that is if you read one of my books, it will sound like I'm speaking to you now. And if we ever have a coffee, it will sound uh, like we're speaking now because I don't change and neither should you. Very long answer to a very short question, but thank you, my friend. Next. Yes. Would I consider myself rich? What's my net worth? So, um, it, it depends on who you ask. So I used to think that I was pretty wealthy. I now think that um, according to, I read a book by a guy called Felix Dennis and he said that I'm comfortably poor. So here's, here's the reality. So I have no debts. Uh, I get to travel quite a bit. So I don't go into, I have any debts. I don't owe anybody money. Life is pretty good. My kids go to a good school. I get to do all of those things. And I pretty much get to buy within reason, nice small little things that I want. 
However, if I stop working uh, soon, I will run out of money, right? So I've not built up enough wealth. So being rich is, is not interesting. Being wealthy is interesting. And wealthy is a byproduct of saving. The single way, people always say, oh, if you could change your life, you know, go back and do anything differently, would you? And no, I'll do everything the same. And then you're an ass, right? <laughs> if I could go back again, I would save. Right, I would start saving 20% of my income from my first job when I was 14 years old and I never would have stopped. If I had done that by now, it wouldn't matter how many businesses I owned. I would have enough wealth invested because of compounding. Does everybody know who comp what compounding is? No. The greatest, no. Ah, oh, you're in for a treat. It's amazing. It is the greatest force known to humankind. Right, when you understand compounding, you beat everybody. When you understand how compound interest works, it basically means that if you save a certain amount of money one year, the next year you have the interest of that money that you earn interest on. And then the next year, and the next year, and the next year. Uh, a friend of mine once, a guy who kind of first taught me this, he said, and he's a guy who I think is both rich and wealthy. He said, uh, if you took a 20 year old guy, goes out and gets a job and says, I'm going to invest a thousand rand a month every single month for the rest of my life. Starts at 20. Starts investing. Now he's a twin. Gets to 30 years old. And on the 30th birthday, his twin brother sees how well he's done. And he says, I'm going to do this now as well. And the original guy says, cool, I'm going to stop. And he's just going to leave his money in the bank, just earning interest, but never going to spend one more cent on it. The other brother who started saving at that point and went to the rest of his life, saved for the rest of his life, will never catch him. Right? The mathematics don't work. You can never catch that person. That's how much of a head start saving early is. And uh, it's definitely the biggest mistake I've made. So the answer to that question is no, I cannot be rich if I do not have wealth. I can only be, I can only be cash flush. And it's uninteresting. I've now reached a point in my life where... Uh, it's so overrated because you chase these horizons. I bought a Porsche when I was 30 and I felt great about myself until one day I drove up at the traffic lights on Malabong Way. And I said, oh, when you buy a Porsche, you pretend like, oh, I don't care. It's just me being me. It wasn't. It was just me being an idiot. And I was driving next to people and I'd look to see who saw me. Hey, what's up? <laughs> and then one day I was driving up Malabong Way and I look out, hey, and it was a guy in a Ferrari and he looks at me, what's up? I'm like, oh. <laughs> Here's one thing I've realized in my life is that in the Olympic Games, in the Olympic Games of being rich, right? If I fulfill my wildest financial dreams, I won't even make the four ways team, right? Somebody here is richer. I definitely won't make the South African team. There's no chance of me getting to the actual Olympics of being rich. But in the Olympics of understanding presentation theory, not me as a speaker, but in our area of, of expertise. Hell, we'll captain, guarantee the South African team, no doubt. We're the fourth largest company that does what we do in the world, right? We will captain the South African team in, in that discipline. And I would guarantee, almost certainly, that we will get a podium position in the Olympics of this space. That matters to me. Money, there's always somebody richer. You've got to figure out what your enough is and you've got to figure it out early and then you've got to work out how you can preserve that. And all I'm interested right now for the next part of my life is not making more money to buy more stuff. It's just how can I preserve the lifestyle I have where I no longer have to work. I just do work that I want to do. Right now, if you ask me to retire tomorrow, I couldn't. However, my goal is when I'm 52, so by the time my daughter finishes school, 
uh, that I will never have to do any work again. One of the things I want to do is do a year of just living on donations. So everyone can just pay me what they feel like for what they want to do. And I can only do that if I know that my family's future is safe. So, no. So I, never, I, don't, I don't identify as being a public speaker. It's something I do. I, I'm an entrepreneur, a business person. I, I never ever, I never could I get around the fact that I wouldn't run my own business. So I always just knew that I wanted to run a company. Entrepreneurship for me was just an area and a field I wanted to get into. Uh, what I figured I would always be and what uh, it's probably capitalism's biggest mistake is it doesn't give enough respect to the sphere is I knew I would always be selling stuff. But I knew, because all of this is just sales, I knew I would always be a salesman of some kind. And uh, capitalism's biggest mistake for me is that we vilify salespeople. For some reason, a lot of times sales isn't seen as the admirable career it is. But I can tell you in all of my companies, there are very few problems that couldn't be solved by better sales. So I always knew I wanted to be in sales to some degree. Before that, I wanted to be a professional stuntman. As you can see by the way that I'm limping and moving around, clearly that was not the right um, career choice for me. Uh, I, all, I have future careers that I want to be though, and those I'm quite excited about. So I want to write fiction. I want to do another uh, different things. I've written more like businessy books, but I want to write a thriller and I want to, I want to be able to reinvent. What I hope is that if I live long enough, I want to be remembered for something that isn't business. So I want to do business up until I'm 52, and then I want to find something else. I, want to, I don't know what that is yet. Now, I want, to, I want to have more than one career in my life that is meaningful and fundamentally different. Yes, sir? What do your tattoos mean? Uh, so much. Uh, that one is F, your pride. Yeah, uh, the tattoo artist wouldn't write on the whole word, uh, but your pride gets in the way of you a lot. This is a very famous Scottish cartoon character. It's called Urwai. Uh, it means that uh, just reminds me of um, Scottish. This is a clover. Represents my two sisters and I. I believe firmly in the principle of family first. Uh, the the fact we've all moved around the world, but the fact that I live walking distance from my parents and my sisters and my nieces and nephews is something that I hold very dear. This is a commentary on my religious beliefs, which I'm not going to go into right now. Uh, then this is all about board games and strategy games uh, that you wouldn't necessarily know unless you know the very hot games I have. This is about music. There's a couple of music based. Uh, there's a guy called Chester Bennington. Don't even know who he is. He's the singer of a band called Lincoln Park. He had two of these. I liked his attitude. It's a bit of a tribute to Chester. And I've got one here that says, reclaim yourself, question everything. Uh, I believe if there was one tattoo that everybody, or two tattoos, that everybody, three tattoos, yeah. Hell, we can just tattoo you guys. Okay, give me, give me a pen and a hammer. If I could tattoo things on you, the number one thing I would tattoo on you is question everything. The number two thing I would tattoo you on you is FYP. And the number three thing I would tattoo on you is uh, uh, E. Well, let me see. I'm trying to figure out in a proper formula. D plus E minus F. And it means... Uh, Discipline and effort minus feelings. There's so many times that we go through our life and we don't feel like doing stuff. 
but your feelings are rubbish. Nobody cares about your feelings, right? You're not about how you feel about things and stuff. If, you don't, if I don't feel like feeding my kids in the morning, it doesn't matter. I've got to get up and make the effort and discipline. If I don't feel like writing an awkward sales email to a customer because I'm too embarrassed to feel like I'm begging for money, then my feelings mean nothing because I've got to pay things. Effort and discipline uh, outrank feelings on almost everything important you have to do in your life. And sometimes you have to realize you won't feel like doing things, but just make the efforts. Those would be three of the things I would tattoo on you. Uh, and then I don't know, there's a Scottish one and my whole back is tattooed. It says, does not play well with others because I am uh, uh, an extreme introvert uh, in many, many ways. And I struggle with people. This is easy because it's me and you guys, but I struggle with crowds. I've never been very, very good with lots of people. I've never had lots and lots of friends. I have small, intimate things. I don't smoke, I don't drink, and I don't take drugs. So I don't like big parties the same way other people do. And um, so I have all of those kind of things that make me. And then here, I've got a big motorcycle guy because I've got my Vespa and Joburg, but I'm always happier when I'm on a motorbike. What did you do when you were 14? When I was 14, I packed bags at a spa in Welterfrieden Park. Uh, and I, then I sold um, personalized stationery. So it's, very, it's harder for you guys now. I realized this with my son. When I was 14, I could walk into the spa. I asked for a job. He said, no. I walked in the next day, asked for a job. He said, no. I walked in the next day, asked for a job. He said, yes. And my friends all told me I could do that. So I packed bags. And then I started selling uh, personalized business cards. I sent away for a mail order catalog and I would walk door to door. And I would say to people, hey, do you want to buy my stationery? But um, I said, so my son has a job, my daughter, she's 11, she doesn't, she's so lazy, you know, how am I ever going to retire? But uh, uh, I do believe uh, that learning a work ethic early is important, and I don't believe it may be harder for you to get a job, and this is the best news ever. And I'll tell you why, and what I said to my son was because now you have to go out and be an entrepreneurial. So the one idea they had was, um, have you ever seen those kind of videos on social media where they show you how to make like a dessert and it's like the whole recipe is like 60 second videos like this. So they were gonna go around and they were gonna make these little ingredients kits for desserts and go around the estates in which we live and show people the videos and then they would say it to them and then the people would buy dessert kits uh, for the next day. And so they were gonna do a mail order business around that. That was one idea they came up with. If you can't get a job, you're forced to create a job. If you're forced to create a job, you'll leave school as an entrepreneur. Every one of you should have something you're doing have a side hustle now start a business uh, that uh, and it will lay you in good stead even if you go out and get a job you'll understand the pain that your employers are, are in and it'll give you better perspective so if you can't get a job make a job it's easy to have confidence when you're speaking about something you love what happens when you don't love what you're speaking about well it's easy to have confidence when you speak about something you love it's also easy to have confidence when you speak about something you hate. In fact, it's easier. If you, if, we took, if you challenged me on a topic that I was angry about, I would think it would be a better talk. Because anger, for me, and frustration is a bigger thing. It's very, very difficult to have a talk about something you're indifferent about. So let me give you the number one tip in the world. Never forget this. This is how you're going to solve that problem. Don't speak about things you're indifferent about. Right, if somebody asks you, hey, stand up and speak about this thing. I don't care about it. Speak about it. No. You speak about it. If you care about it, you speak about it. Or I'll tell you why I don't care about it. The reason I don't care about it is because it's uninteresting. And if it's uninteresting, why are we wasting people's time talking about it? Right? So either find something you care about. And care takes different forms. Either love it 
or I'm frustrated by it, but either way, I care about it. I'm indifferent to it, find the person who cares. So yeah, and you're right, but you're spot on, it's much, much easier to do it when you do care. How are we doing on time? Tired. What is the time? Shame you're tired. Shame man, do you want to hug it out? Are you okay? Yes. Cool, so we've got 10 more minutes. Hit it. Yes. Uh, 21. Yeah, 21, first tattoo, 30, first motorcycle. I think those are good rules for life. Uh, delusional self-belief and unleashed power with no cage are, are two things that should never mix. I love motorcycles. I want my children to love motorcycles, but only when they're 30. Uh, and I will absolutely, my kids are like, oh, my dad's got tattoos. They'll let me get them when I'm 15. I will cut them out with a wooden spoon, <laughs> right? Uh, your life is going to be long. And for me, you know, you asked about it. It's a collection. None, none of them are meaningless. It's a collection of different things about my life. It's a journal of who I am. And, you know, when I'm, when I'm like, a, a, people say to me, like, what happens when you're a wrinkly old man? and you have tattoos. I'll be badass wrinkled man with tattoos. <laughs> Kick your ass, right? <laughs> but it'll be stories of my life and I love that. Uh, so you don't have to rush into getting them. And that's my one thing about tattoos if you ever did decide to get one. It's so easy and so addictive to go through all of them. Pace yourself. Life is long. Memories come all the time. And don't necessarily do it. Uh, if you're doing it because you think it's something that's rad and fashionable at the time, that fashion will wear off and then you're stuck with crappy art. Listen, if you can see this one, my wife wouldn't even look at it at night. If I want some sexy time and it's okay because we're married, she wants to cover this up. I'll put on a t-shirt. <laughs> so pick your artist well. I have children. I know you guys have figured out that, that, how that works. Any other questions? Yes. Uh, my daughter goes to a school called Elkana House down in Cape Town. So we live in Cape Town and my son goes to Abbott's College Where? in Cape Town, oh. Century City. No, yeah. guys, I know. <laughs> so I've, I've for when my daughter was born, I started commuting. So I lived Mondays to Thursdays in Johannesburg and weekends in Cape Town Thursdays. I did that for 10 years because my main company, Missing Link, is it's exactly 700, um, 700 uh, meters away from here. Uh, we do, if ever any of you want to do, I know in like, I don't know if you guys do like grade 10 job shadowing. That is something we definitely offer. If you want to come in, a lot of our clients, kids have come to us. And because we're around the corner, so we've won like world's coolest small business offices uh, before. And you're also welcome at some stage if you did want to come across and arrange for our classes to come in and visit. We have a concierge and he'll take you on a tour and show you around how we work. Let's do two more questions and then I'll let you go. Yes, sir. Who's my hairdresser? It is a lady uh, in... I've had the same hairdresser since I was 16 and I just changed. And uh, it's a lady in that... Um, just, her name is Tam, just opposite um, Monte Cassino. Next. <coughs> um, okay, so not, the, the, the easy cliched answer to that question is I want people to have a great attitude. Uh, but it's actually different to that, right? Because you do have to hire, if you're hiring somebody ever in a business, you have to hire to some degree for, uh, you, you, we often want people that can do a certain job or have an aptitude for it. Uh, but we want people to resonate with us, right? So if you come into a company, we're all, and we're definitely not all the same. We're just all equally different. And so I want somebody who exists in that equally different sphere, right? Uh, the way I explain to people is that in our company, if you look at like the radio hits the top 40, that's like the inner circle. 
and then you go out one sphere and you've got kind of slightly edgier bands and then you've got another sphere and you've got edgier bands in all different disciplines. I've discovered that a person who likes, like, what's some crazy ass like hip-hop guy? Who would that be? I know who's like, like, say in metal it might be a band called Cannibal Corpse, okay? It's like way, way out there. And then you've got like Nickelback, okay? And what I've discovered is even though you can trace the roots of that and that, the person who likes Cannibal Corpse or 69 will have a lot less in common with the person who likes Nickelback than they will with somebody who likes crazy ass music on the other side, right? I saw once uh, two guys speak. The one guy's name is Richard Dawkins. He's a very, very outspoken atheist and biologist, and I, I saw somebody else speak at the same stage, and his name was Martin Marty, and he's a very, very well-respected theologian. I thought, oh, this is gonna be gnarly. They're gonna go to war. These, they have such fundamental different beliefs, and they don't. They have mutual respect on absolutely everything because they're that learned on their field, and only one thing different. At the end of it, I believe that there is a God, and I believe that there isn't. And I always try to hire people that are on the same quantum as I am. So, because we have to go, I have to work with them every day and I have to enjoy being around them. So that's a very, very big deal for me. Bizarrely, but don't be put off qualifications for me and certification is no longer nearly as important for a small business in the entrepreneurial sector like me, like we would hire. I believe that most things that we, I would like people to have a series of short courses, uh, information, and I worry that we over-invest in, uh, tertiary education earlier in her career, which made sense for my dad when he was, my dad did a job when he left school, he studied for it for five years and he did the job until he retired. Unfortunately, he couldn't do it. He didn't have to have course after course after course. So I want people who come in, they must be able to prove to me that they're smart and sometimes certification can do that. But for us, we want people with a great attitude and we want people with a willingness to learn for the rest of their life. I believe education's mindset should be whole life learning. I believe the certificate you get uh, at university should expire every few years unless you renew it. I don't think you can ever have a mindset again where you go and you get a degree and you're like, hey, I'm done. Uh, you better start finding out what you can enjoy learning because you need to keep doing it for the rest of your life. And that's what we look for, people with a thirst for that. Yes. No, I finished school. Uh, one guy did worse than me at school. The guy who did worse than him failed. And uh, I left and I, I left school. I started waitering the night after my, I left matric. I went and I started doing that. Uh, and then I s became a roadie with, when I was, just when I turned 19. And I started my first business when I was 22. It's a rocky, rocky, rocky road. I'm not sure I would advise doing it again. Yeah, but uh, I always felt that I was fundamentally unhirable and I knew I never wanted a job. So I didn't want a job and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I saw no reason why I would possibly want to be educated because I didn't need to get a job. I needed to make a job. Now, now I'm looking at executive learning. I study all the time. I just came back from a global leadership academy. I'm looking at doing some uh, work at Harvard because now I've figured out the stuff that I want to learn going forward. Uh, so the answer to your question, did I go to university? Not yet but I'm still trying to figure it out. Uh, don't let that be a, uh, you know, you do you. <laughs> cool. Yes. Do you advise your children to go to university or do you advise them to follow their Okay, so I always said, so I will not let my kids go to university if they don't know what they want to do. My sister sent my, my nephew to university. Oh, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Oh, go do a BCom. Okay, I hit it. And he dropped out and he's starting again. What a waste of a year of your life. That's a year, again, 
when you're between 18 and 28, you've got so much energy, you can sleep, you don't have to sleep, you can work all day, go out all night, wake up the following morning and do that again. Don't waste years of your life if you don't know what you want to do, figure that out. Right? This idea of gap years, oh, I want to go on holiday, become an au pair, it's bullshit. Sorry, I feel strongly about that, passionate, my bad. Uh, but if you're willing to go out and explore the world for a year to figure out what is the problem I want to solve and what can I do that's meaningful, then you come back and go to your parents' study, that counts. Now my son is obsessed with the idea of being an astrophysicist. I will not let him not go to university because he knows exactly what he wants to do. He's laser focused, he absolutely wants it and he can't be that unless he achieves a good, good level in, in, that, in that sphere. So I will encourage everything and support him. My daughter right now wants to be a writer. That's fantastic. And I will support that when we get to the age where that matters, I will support her in all her decisions. But if she's 18 years old and she's not really sure, then I'll say, well, let's, let's go try find you some work or put you in the right companies. So one of the businesses I want to start soon is called the Freshman Foundation. I want to take kids after school. I want to get my corporate clients and different customers to pay me. And I will place them, I will charge, say, your parents a fee uh, that they would pay for the first year of university to us. And we'll get paid by corporates and a second fee. And then we will put you in a small job paying you a stipend for one month at a time for 10 months in 10 different industries and 10 different fields. You'll be expected to work, but at the end of that gap year, you'll have a good idea of like, oh, that sucks. That's amazing. I want to do more like that. And even if only the problem we solve for you is I want to work for a small business versus a big business. Typically, big businesses, uh, university degrees, things like that, very robust hiring structure, small businesses, college diplomas, uh, short courses, things like that. So no, I will never force my kids ever uh, to do anything, uh, but I will support them 100%. And if I think that they need it, uh, then I will, I mean, like my son, I will absolutely make sure he goes and does it. What is the age of your youngest My youngest employee. Ha! Unfortunately, I have people now who work for me that weren't alive when I started my business. Uh, so I've got 20-year-olds uh, at the business at the moment, uh, and I think a 19-year-old just started. So I'm not functional anymore in any of the companies. We've got professionals who run them. Uh, I start companies. I realize there's a big difference between starting companies and running companies. And if any of you decide to start companies, uh, you have to masquerade at being a manager for a long period of time, for like 10 years. You've got to really build your business up. But I realize I'm not good at it. I don't like doing day-to-day -day detail stuff. I want to start businesses and change the world. So I'm focused on that and we've got people who hire people. So I actually, I'm not uh, sure in all the businesses what, they, what that would be, but I know in Missing Link we've got a 19 year old, which is depressing. It really makes me feel old. <laughs> Yo. Um, how many people have you employed in overall all your I'm not, I'm not sure how many people I've employed overall in all businesses, but I do know 20, uh, my more prouder statistic, and it's great, provide jobs, fantastic, but the statistic that makes me really proud is more than 20 ex-staff members now run their own companies. So I believe that we've done a really good job of culture, cultivating future uh, entrepreneurs. We make people good enough that they can leave and feel confident enough to start a business, not just try and suck as much as we can out of them. And uh, one of the ways we do that is if a staff member comes up with a business idea that they have that they think would be cool, we give them Fridays off for six months to start it. We still pay them. They don't have to come to work for six months. but. After the end of those six months, if they've not started a company, they must uh, come back to work. Crap or get off the pot, right? You, you know, you're either, you're either going to commit to it and start it. Nobody gave me that luxury. I had a full-time job. I was doing really well at Gearhouse. Uh, I had one month's salary. 
no tertiary education. At the time it was 7,000 Rand. It's as little then as it was now. I had one month salary, I quit, I started my job and we've been profitable every single uh, year since with one month salary. If you can sell stuff and you can convince people to buy it, you'll be okay. We good? Thank you so much everybody for engaging so openly. I hope it's been helpful. We are around the corner. Uh, there's an email address, there's a, uh, it's in red so you can't see it, it's getrich.af. You can figure out what that means. Uh, that, that is my URL and you'll find links to all of these things. You're more than welcome to mail us. Uh, speak to your teachers if ever you want to come and visit the companies or chat about anything. I've got some slides and things on this content, but I figured I was going to be better off not using them. I'm happy to share any of that with you. And if you do care about presenting, I've written a book as well. And we can get some copies across to the school and you're welcome to read it. Thank you very much for your time, attention and questions. Thank you. I'll stop. <laughs> cool, thanks.